Hi, I'm Ken Sweeney. This is The Comfortable Spot. Welcome. my guest is naturalist Donald Hoburn. Donald is a lifelong naturalist with strong interests in Lepidoptera, DNA barcoding and metabarcoding, insect photography and automation of species detection. I met Donald via the Mastodon platform as I was looking for someone with experience in entomology which is the study of insects and their relationships to humans, the environment and other organisms. Donald is a wonderful guest with a wealth of knowledge on the world of insects and we have a really informative chat. So I hope you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us. Donald, hi. Thanks for joining me on The Comfortable Spot. Thanks very much, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here. We've got a really interesting subject. A subject that might, maybe people might not want to listen to this podcast while they're in bed at night. <laughs> well, I, I hope it's not that bad. No, we're going to dispel a few, uh, a few myths, aren't we? Uh, we're going to talk about entomology, which is kind of the word, kind of a posh word for insects. And uh, yes. yeah, it's, you can't get away from them. They're everywhere. They're a part of our society. They're a part of our ecosystem. Um, we can, you know, some people like to go to war with them. Some people like to make love to them. But uh, either way, they're, they're here to stay, aren't they? Uh, very definitely, yes. Uh, and I hope for a very long time in the future. Yeah, because I mean, we, you know, society and pop culture has dealt with the idea of insects living amongst us in very different ways. I mean, if you go back to when we started to kind of use them in movies, they were oversized. They were always a threat. You know, they were kind of metaphor, weren't they, for the communists and the Russians and the nuclear war and that kind of thing. There was always something surrounding them getting bigger and, you know, living in tunnels Mm -hmm. and sneaking out and attacking. And then at the end there's a big battle and one or two guys saved the day. But of course, um, if you look back into their, into their history and the way they, they started off in this planet and the way they came into being, um, that's not far away from the truth because they were quite big when they, you know, towards one stage. So maybe we can, we can talk about that in a few moments, but I wanted to start with the history of them and probably the better word of the, the 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 biology of them and how they how they grew and how they became part of our ecology what what's the origin of insects did they come first were they one of the first creatures to come onto land or did we have sauropods and so on before then uh no they they're, they're pretty early on land uh there's some aspects of their origins which are still a little bit unclear exactly how they're related to crustaceans things like um shrimps and crabs and um and wood lice and things like that but uh they they came came on land very early uh and for a long time they were some of the most dominant life forms on land and and you mentioned that at uh, at one stage uh, there were very very large insects uh, some of them with 70 centimeter wingspans uh, and it's believed that they were some of the top predators of their age so uh yeah they they they've been with us a long time they've been here much longer than we have and they're really everywhere uh across the planet except for in the the very very coldest parts of antarctica there's very few down there but generally insects are a major part of every ecosystem when we go back millions and millions of years the, the sexy you know conversation is always about dinosaurs i mean when when we go into that area the the, the uh the jurassic period what were they like at that point were they very noticeable or were they much smaller 
now I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this up because uh, I'm not a great paleontologist, but uh, a lot of the early insects were probably closer in general appearance to the kind of things we think of like dragonflies uh, or perhaps uh, cockroaches and crickets. Uh, many of them had very simple body plans and uh, apparently life cycles compared to some of the more complicated insects today. So the front and the back wings tended to have lots and lots of veins. Uh, they were very similar, the front and back wings, whereas a lot of insects today have completely different wings. You'll be aware that beetles have very tough four wings that protect uh, the, the hind wings, and flies really only have two obvious wings. So things have, have become more diversified since that point. Uh, but yeah, if you think of things like like dragonflies today, that'll probably give you a fair impression of the sort of look of some of the insects. When we look at them today, we see that they are small in comparison to the way they used to be. This was a case of oxygen content, and wasn't it? I mean, because quite simply, it's impossible for insects to grow beyond a, a, a you know size today. Yes, yes, I, they rely mostly on getting oxygen passively through the 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 various pores in their body. And so there's a limited distance that the oxygen will diffuse. They can do a little bit more than that. They can they can pump their body walls to get more more moving. But uh, at the time when there was such a massive explosion of oxygen in the atmosphere, uh, it was possible for, apparently for insects to grow much bigger than they do today. Mm -hmm. And were they mostly predators or were they part of the ecosystem? I think I think as today, uh, a wide range of tiers through the ecosystem. And I think it's one of the things that's most interesting or most important for us about insects that uh, we live in a planet where uh, most of the uh, most of the biomass that's produced uh, comes from solar energy being converted by plants into into physical material. And a lot of the uh, the rest of every ecosystem, every terrestrial ecosystem anyway, depends at some level on the work of insects, either in uh, in responding to those plants, eating different parts of them, uh, the the different levels of uh, of interaction with other insects and spiders and organisms that eat those insects, all the way up through insectivorous and carnivorous animals, and you can. You can see that because of their great diversity and the fact that there are insects eating pretty much every part of each variety of plant, that they're doing a massive amount to uh, to liberate uh, some of that uh, that biomass that is collected by plants. So they're essential in terms of cleaning up after the bigger animals. Uh, they're they're essential in all sorts of ways, I and mean, it's certainly uh, we're, we're well aware that. Uh, they they play an important part for most plants in pollination. Mm -hmm. uh, so the the entire life cycles of many plants depend on the fact that they're going to be visited by insects. Uh, plants and insects have really evolved together and have a lot of mutualisms of that kind. At the same time, uh, plants are uh, in battle with insects that are uh, attacking all the parts of their uh, of their structures. And uh, so plants have 
evolved to uh, to use chemical responses uh, or even to attract uh, things like ants to live within them to help to clear them of some of the the insects that would otherwise uh, consume their tissue uh, and you have you have insects living inside the the trunks of trees inside the stems of plants you obviously have them eating leaves and seeds and fruits uh, they're down in the roots they're either consuming roots while crawling through the soil or else boring through the roots many many interactions between uh, plants and insects just to touch back on the evolution of them when mm. say for the first couple of million years did we have communities of insects like the way we do now with the termites and ants the, the the systems that we that we see today in in those those two groups i believe are, are much more recent uh, certainly uh they're in um, for the for the ants and the bees and the social wasps uh it seems that sociality um the ability to have a society with um with different castes that uh, play different roles is something that's evolved i think several times but uh relatively recently and again um i'm sorry i'm no paleontologist and i'm not going to give you good dates on those things but um termites termites are again uh somewhat specialized they're really uh they're now understood to be a specialized form of cockroach really mm-hmm. and uh so again they're they're very developed from some of the the simpler uh, earlier forms were they playing a very important role as they developed and as their ecology developed and as they evolved? Obviously, if you have, say, bees and wasps, as you talk about coming into uh, coming into the plan of things, that must must have meant a vast explosion in, in, in vegetables and plants and flowers as well. Yes, um, I think probably the bigger the bigger radiations uh, that really uh, transformed the planet into the planet we know today were probably uh, with with things like the beetles and uh, the moths and butterflies, both of which had uh, explosive radiations of, of diversity and species uh, around the time that flowering plants in particular uh, started to appear. Because the, 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 the very large insects that uh, you were referring to referring to before things like uh, i think they're called griffin flies uh those were living in a world which would have had a lot more uh horse tails and relatively simple plants uh in our in our current terms uh and the the real success story of many insect groups has been how they've managed to evolve and diversify through all the different niches that flowering plants have offered and when it comes to the amount and the diversity that was around was there a period over the last say couple of million years when there would have been a lot more insects and then compared to today or is today well say when we say today say the last say two three thousand years is this the golden age of insects would you say uh i'm well if if we're, we're talking about the the last few um few million years i would say that uh yes insects in, insects apparently uh have become very successful uh, and a dominant part of most ecosystems. I'd say, of course, that right now uh, there are many signs that it's very much not a golden age for insects because of such drastic declines that I think are becoming increasingly clear all over the globe. 
this is important for our ecology, isn't it? Because, um, you know, they are our interface, aren't they? And if we don't, if we start to abuse that or we start to disrupt that, we're going to have um, serious problems in the future. Yes. And I think this is one of the things that is very hard for us all to, to take in. Uh, I grew up uh, in Essex uh, in the UK um, in the, the late 60s, early 70s. I was out and about. Um, along the coast there, uh, bird watching and looking at nature at the time. And I remember, this is an anecdote, obviously, but I remember such large numbers of butterflies and, and insects I've never seen in the last 20 odd years, uh, things like burnet moths. And, uh, and of course, um, many of us remember uh, driving vehicles back then and windshields getting so covered with dead insects and it was it was the I was living in Florida in the in the early 90s and it was very similar there then but today um, and I don't believe this is just improved engineering of car aerodynamics or anything uh, we're seeing many fewer insect collisions with vehicles if you go into many um, habitats um, even very natural areas uh, the numbers of insects flying around seems drastically lower. And uh, one of our challenges is that we still don't understand, uh, first of all, how much things have changed because there's so few real data on these things. Uh, and secondly, uh, just what the implications are long term for some of those ecosystems, because the, the ecosystem is going through many other changes at the same time with climate change and changing land use uh, and all of these things tangled together. But because of all of those roles that we were talking about earlier that insects play, some of them beneficial to us and some of them harmful, such as uh, eating our crops or spreading diseases, uh, we, we know that they play many, many roles. Uh, all around us, including very critical roles in our food supply, uh, because uh, many of our crop plants depend at some stage on animals and particularly insects pollinating them. Uh, and that's that's a big concern going into the future. And of course, we're using all kinds of chemicals to um, to keep them down to to uh, you know, mm -hmm. reverse their kind of impact on 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 the uh, on our society. But we're we're not as you said there we're not 100% sure what the long term effects of all these uh, you know insecticides and so on it's going to have some sort of effect we definitely know but we're still not 100% sure whether it's going to be uh, serious or just serious but it's but it's, it's it is getting a, it's a worry isn't it it it's it's a worry and it's it's harder to get people i suppose excited or concerned about it than it would if we were talking about loss of penguins and pandas and things that may seem more charismatic and easy, easier for people to sympathize with. Uh, and for many of us, especially those of us living in cities, uh, our encounters with insects are with annoying ones that have come into our living quarters and we want to get rid of. And so for many people, the reaction is to get the, the pest spray and, and try and kill them. And because of that, I think most of us are unfamiliar with uh, the real diversity of insects and just how important they are to this living planet. It's funny you say that because we don't have anything like that in the house. And I have two daughters and they're always kind of wondering why do we, you know, have very few insects in the house? And I mm. say it's because I leave the spiders there. <laughs> And, you know, it, it helps. Yeah. And it's it's like, you know, when I do see a spider in the house, there, there might be a bit of panic from the kids, but they're more or less used to it now. 
And uh, obviously we don't have spiders here in Ireland that would be the size of some spiders around the world, but they can they can grow to be quite noticeable. And like we always try and, you know, pick it up and put it outside the door, but I always put it right outside the door knowing that being the clever creature that it is, it'll probably find a way back in. But as I say, we don't seem to have those uh, kind of amount of insects that I would have had as a kid in our house. And yeah. I think it's down to being aware of the, as you say, the interaction that you can have with insects without them particularly bothering you. Um, we need to get by this uh, myth, don't we, that every single insect wants to bite you for a start. Yeah. And every single, every single insect is interested in you and nothing else. That's that's certainly the case. And um, I... I find I'm. I've spent many years um, as a, when, when I was young. I'll, I'll put it this way: when I was young, I was very interested in insects. But uh, and I I spent time looking at them, probably in my sort of pre-teens, early teens. But found that uh, it was very hard to study them because uh, I didn't know anybody who was an entomologist or who could help me get beyond the most basic that's a grasshopper and that's a, a dragonfly level of understanding. Uh, and years later, uh, thanks to the internet, thanks to digital photography, uh, it became clear, I suppose, in, in the 90s, that there are many insect groups where today interested amateurs can can go out, they can they can find these, these insects, they can study them, and they can get help online or through an increasing number of, of really great books, especially in, in Europe, identifying uh, these insects. And and it's it's such a big change. Um, we have the opportunity to get much closer to insects now than we did in the past. Uh, but they're often harder to find and less conspicuous. Uh, I'd certainly recommend, for example, uh, some of the some of the sites these days uh, on the internet, such as iNaturalist, uh, that I use uh, a great deal myself, which are fantastic ways for anyone who's interested in learning more about the the animals and plants and fungi around them uh, to get help doing so. They you can upload a, a photo of pretty much anything. Uh, and some of the machine learning tools there will help you if you've got no idea at all what it is. But after that, it's a very collaborative, um, it's almost a social social media network in itself for, for natural history. Uh, and, and so that's the kind of thing where I think it can help to break down some of that fear that otherwise exists and help us to, to connect a bit more. Uh, with this aspect of nature. And, and I'd also say that it, it's really important for us to do so because uh, one of our one of our challenges scientifically and from the standpoint of conservation and planning for a sustainable future is that we really have so little data on the uh, the distribution, the populations and the diversity, of insects in most places, let alone how that's been changing over time. And so every opportunity for people to get out there and uh, to photograph the butterflies or the dragonflies or whatever else may interest them, ladybirds are very attractive, um, that can help us by contributing more of the data we need to understand what's really happening. I think school helps as well. Um, I know in our local school here, there is a big push for examining and looking at insects in a new way. 
and also finding mm-hmm. them not so threatening. I mean, as I said, my kids are coming home and they have got different ideas now how to deal with them. When I was a child, you know, even if a bee came into a house, there was a panic, there was a paper rolled up and it was all smack bang trying to get it yeah. out. Nowadays, if a bee comes into the house, everyone gets worried about it. <laughs> They're wondering, does it need some sugar and water to drink? Or, you know, how can we let it out without annoying it or disturbing it? Which way did it come in? Can we get it back out the way it came in? Because I think that's down to education, isn't it? And of course, you see these, uh, you know, these short videos on, you know, YouTube and so on and Instagram about how somebody gave the bee a little bit of water and it got happy and flew mm-hmm. off again. These help, don't they? They do. They do. And I, I think that is that is also a change and it's part of a wider growth in understanding in society that uh, nature isn't just something for us to overcome and um, exploit, but that uh, it's the context in which we live. And that if we want to have a healthy future for ourselves, for our children, uh, we need to be thinking a lot more about the environment and about the health of more than just uh, our manicured lawns or uh, the parts of the the world in which each of us lives. Now that you mentioned manicured lawns, it's um, it amazes me how people they just can dig up an entire lawn and just say put down plastic. For example, they have these plastic grasses. Right. I don't know where it's the same where you are, but here in Ireland, it's becoming more and more popular because people are just too lazy. They don't want to bother cutting the grass, or they don't want to do that. And I'm just thinking the amount of damage that square, you know, that small square meters that that grass is in, because you know when we think about it in terms of their environment, it's it's massive, you know, for them. And if we cover mm-hmm. say two or three square meters of you know grass with this plastic stuff you know it's bad enough that we're concreting everywhere but even going in where there should be grass people are doing this and if we're going to do yeah. this in a big way that surely is going to have massive impact yes yes uh, every everything that reduces uh, the amount of natural or semi-natural space we have is obviously fragmenting the, the habitat for whatever insects and birds and and stoats and weasels and everything else uh, that still remains. Uh, so it's it's harder for them to get even to the patches that are, are full of the uh, the things that they need. Uh, but it also contributes to this uh, this this risk that people become more and more alienated from nature and see it as something intrinsically scary. That uh, it's got something moving rather than just being a nice tidy space. Mm-hmm. and growing of course and developing and changing as well because we change the garden in our back garden a fair bit we might mm-hmm. grow something one year then grow something a different year because it kind of it rejuvenates the, the grounds and it helps it really every year we yeah. find things are growing quicker and faster and you know what like even still the, our biggest problem would probably be green fly and slugs and you know it's a case of just spotting mm-hmm. them and picking them up and we usually put the slugs into say a box we have a kind of the kids have a hotel for animals and so on and that's kind of walled off so we pop them in there and we know we're going to see them in a few days time but you know yeah. it's not something like the, the idea of throwing them into a bin or doing some obnoxious things like pouring alcohol on them and all that i mean it's it's just not something that's in the psyche of us anymore and i suppose if i'm i'm in my 50s now so if i can change that you know it's it's sure that everyone else can change so it's really a case of just kind of getting the news out there isn't it that they are that they are probably more important than they are a threat yes yes uh, it's it's a really important message and uh one that uh, that 
uh, this podcast and and many other uh, communication channels, it's really important to help to share that that understanding that just because something moves differently from us and uh, may have strange behaviors uh, and some of the the behaviors of some insects are certainly when you when you look at the biology uh, you'd hate to have it happening to you uh, but not being frightened of those things and starting to to understand just how much it's it's part of part of our own support system is also i, th- I think really really critical i wanted to ask you about say dealing with them in terms of the future of what we can gain to know and gain to gain from in terms of a scientific way mm. have we do, has there been any genome studies done on any insects uh certainly yes and there's there's a growing number especially for major pest species because that's helped uh the uh those who are working in biosecurity to identify ways that uh, perhaps less harmful chemicals may may control uh particular insects but uh one of well, one of the thing that excites me most about um genomics is that it is a chance for us to fill some of the the major gaps in our knowledge uh if you you you're in Ireland uh and most of northwestern europe uh there've been generations of uh professionals and amateurs who've looked at insects and probably 98% of all insect species in northern europe have names uh, and are fairly well understood uh here in australia uh, where i'm living I'm, I'm based in canberra uh i would say that well under half the insects have ever been formally named and for some groups like the the wasps and and the flies uh, those numbers would be would be much lower still uh, so if if i if i go out into my garden here and i i i sweep a net or i put a light out and see what comes uh it's probably not that hard to uh to to identify that that something's a lacewing or or it's it's a bee in a particular family but getting far beyond that is really difficult and the the sheer number of insect species on this planet uh, people reckon that probably a million species have been given names so far but there could well be better part of an order of magnitude more than that by the time we go through all the tropics and uh, look at uh, all of the diversity it's going to take us forever to uh, to put names on all those things and names for species play an important role because it's the only way we can communicate about them uh it's the the only way that uh, they can be named in legislation as being a pest that needs controlling or a species that needs conserving uh and it the only way that we can communicate that the same species is found in different places and that it's spreading etc um and we're never going to get to the end of putting names on all these things but dna uh and uh sequencing of organisms gives us whole new ways to to look at biodiversity if you know, darwin in in one of his publications uh pointed to the idea of a, of a hedgerow buzzing with life and just used that as one of the uh the pictures of 
just the the complexity of life as it's evolved on Earth. But for any even tiny patch, for us to be able to go through and identify all of the plants, all of the insects, all of the other organisms uh, would take lifetimes. Um, there's 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 a a passage in uh, the Sword in the Stone where where Merlin says that it takes three lifetimes to learn natural history and many others to learn medicine and biology, etc. Um, and it would take many more than that to get to be able to identify all of the organisms around us. But DNA gives us a shortcut, and there's been growing effort in recent years to develop libraries of rather short sequences of DNA, just about 600 base pairs, that uh, can serve as a reference catalogue for uh, when we find organisms again. Uh, and and they, they're called, they call these DNA barcodes. And DNA barcoding, I think, is something which is really going to help us map a lot more of what's really happening with insects and with other groups, and particularly help us to, uh, to, to get some real understanding of the trends and what's being lost and what's moving into new areas with climate change, etc. Uh, and so uh, here, here in Canberra, I've had the, the opportunity to, uh, to sequence about eight and a half thousand of the insects that, um, that have come into a, a, a trap uh, in my front garden. And just the number of things that I would never have known if it hadn't been for being able to get that short, fast path to an identification. It it's quite extraordinary. And and so I think I think one of the one of one of my big interests, and it's probably come out in some of the things I've already said, is around the the collection of date, data on the natural world, the data that can help us with future conservation and sustainability planning. Uh, and in contrast to every previous period of human existence, we do have growing numbers of tools with, uh, with DNA, uh, with digital photography, with machine learning, and with things like citizen science platforms like iNaturalist, that can help us to uh, to connect in completely new ways with that diversity and to make sense of it in ways that we we haven't been able to before. You touched on something there, and I wanted to just run back with it about uh, you know the role of insects in medical science. I mean, yeah, we we have a problem at the moment, which is a very serious problem, which most people don't, which are not aware of, and that's the lack of um, you know developments in in uh, antibiotics. It, it's mm -hmm. something where it's growing, it's growing, it's becoming a problem. And when you look at it in detail, it looks a bit scary. We haven't come up with any new antibiotics yeah. in years. Are we, mm -hmm. are we looking at a possibility through the research that you just spoke about that we could find, you know, something in that ecosystem that could help us in that respect? Because they seem as a, as a species, as a general species, to be very resilient mm -hmm. and to be resistant to a lot of problems that we have. So I'm just wondering, is there a chance that maybe we're missing something there and we should be working on that a bit more? Yes, I, I think most definitely. I, I was, I'm, I'm struggling now because I was reading a, a piece just a few days ago that was, I don't think it was with insects in that particular case. But uh, as we 
uh, as we explore and understand more about the biology of organisms, and one of the tools that's really helping us with that is genomics and the ability to make a lot more sense of all of the, the proteins and compounds that are generated in different organs of different organisms. One of the things that is um, increasingly becoming clear is that there, there probably are many compounds that are produced by uh, different biological organisms that are relevant for uses that uh, that we haven't yet identified. Uh, and medical uh, and things like antibiotics would definitely be one of those. We, we don't understand necessarily all of the pathways that uh, that animals are able to use to control the the bacteria and the other organisms, including fungi, uh, that may occupy them. And insects, I think, are, are particularly interesting in that regard because uh, some of the studies are, are around aphids and other groups have shown that the the set of the set of bacteria that live in them are almost like a, a Swiss army knife that uh, depending on which bacteria a, a strain of aphids have been infected with, they may have the ability to feed on plants that otherwise they wouldn't, or they may have increased uh, defenses against fungal or other bacterial infections. And that often these things are are conflicting that that if it's if it's infected with one thing it can't also be infected with something else and each of them gives it a different superpower but it can't have both superpowers at once uh and so the 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 complexity of the uh the biology in many insects um is i think very interesting as a as a kind of factory of different approaches for dealing with uh, either either physical compounds uh, or with the challenges that we face from bacteria and viruses and other infective agents. It's incredible that we, you know, we could probably do an entire podcast just on this topic alone, um, you know, and I'd love to be able to touch on it more. But I'm, I'm tempted to ask like 10 other questions in relation to that, but we're stuck for time. Um, so, so what you're saying really is that we are underestimating the value that they have in our world. And, you know, we see them as a kind of either, uh, you know, a problem or we see them as something that's cute. Um, do, do you think that in the long term, our, their role as a farmed food source is going to impact on that, what we just discussed there? Or is it going to kind of work in tandem with it? Because I know it's not really your field and it's not my field either, but it does seem to right, be something right. that's getting yeah. promoted. You know, there is it. There is an element out there that is trying to promote insects as a farmed food source. Now, yes. you know whether or not that's that's coming from uh, genuine uh, fear of overpopulation and, and over farming, or it's something that's maybe just an agenda that they're just trying to push. Uh, they might have their own agendas, right. whether they be in food production or whatever themselves. So I'm just wondering, you know, given all what you've spoke about, especially with the in reference to their kind of benefits to to science. When they, if they did become a mass food source, I'm thinking, I don't know anything about it, but I'd be kind of worried about that. Do you think that that could work or it could go against it? Uh, I, th I think that for for those of us who've grown up in, in the West, uh, insects are you know, not part of our standard standard set of food sources. And so therefore there's, for many of us, it, it's one of it, it, 
as we grew up, it's one of the things you didn't eat, and therefore there's probably a certain certain level of revulsion. I've I've eaten I've eaten caterpillars um, and um, deep fried caterpillars, and they were perfectly tasty. If I hadn't seen them sort of curled up there, I wouldn't have had a clue what they were. Um, and yeah, that wasn't that wasn't a problem. Uh, so I I do think that insect protein is one of the the very obvious ways for the human race to try to deal with some of the consumption challenges it's facing. Uh, eating eating organisms that are that have relatively short life cycles, uh, where perhaps there's fewer ethical questions about how they're they're kept uh and that hopefully consume uh, convert plant material very efficiently could be a great way to address more of the uh the i suppose food shortages around the world and, and particularly as as human population grows so i would say that you know to my mind it is definitely part of the the arsenal of tools that we have for future fu future food security uh, I would also say, though, that um, as somebody who is 98% vegetarian these days, I guess probably more than that, um, uh, one of the things that's really amazed me, at least here in Australia, and I, I'm sure it's even more the case in, in Europe, is the explosion in the last couple of years of plant-based meat substitutes uh, that are very flexible uh, for all kinds of, of meal preparation. And uh, many of them with uh, with characteristics that uh, are incredibly similar to, uh, to processed meats. Uh, and for that reason, I do wonder whether there's a little bit of a race here that the, 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 the technologists who are doing an increasingly good job of making plant-based protein, foods uh that uh, are highly palatable uh and that uh will uh well you know will will not um seem strange to most people is a a very big step forward and you know it could well be that particularly in the west those are are going to be uh the kind of things that we're going to be eating more of in the years to come and then we're then we're ourselves consuming the plants directly, which is a more efficient use of the resources. Well, in many cases, I'm sure that the level of processing of the plants to get them to this point is itself a, a major a major contribution to um, to uh, to the costs of uh, environmentally. But we're getting there, um, and I think that comparing that to eating tuna or beef, uh, high end organisms that uh, have long lives and um, in the case of tuna very high up the the food chain uh it's going to be it, it's it's one of the things that that gives me hope for a more sustainable future for us and for the insects and for everything else one more question on this what mm. about cloning of insects is there any benefits to it because, for example, you know the way we talk about the fact that we're losing them in the ecosystem, especially bees. There, there's a wonderful mm -hmm. campaign which seems to be growing by the week in that, you know, save right. the bees. It's gone from save the right. whales to save the bees, right? And if we can right. if we can apply the same tactics that we did 
for Wales, you know, we could be fighting a decent fight. But this other role, we are developing cloning. Every single year there are advancements in it. It's kind of kept in check because people have this fear of it no matter what the uh, the mm-hmm. experts or scientists may say. So I'm wondering, can we apply cloning techniques to saving certain insects species? I suspect that uh, that the way that the way that I understand, you know, most of the efforts around cloning um, are, are focused uh, really doesn't doesn't fit the uh, the biology and the life cycles of insects. Uh, and again, I'm I'm going out way on a yeah. We're just a, having a, a chat speculative, here, yeah. <laughs> speculative limb <laughs> no here. Problem. But yeah. but 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 you see, if, I'm, here here in Australia, there's there's uh, you know, a lot of discussion about uh, cloning and well, not not cloning. I suppose it's 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 um, it's bringing uh, Tasmanian wolves thylacines back to life, um, and uh, and so there's it's the kind of thing where it's possible to get a lot of a lot of publicity, a lot of public interest, and therefore potentially sufficient funding to do some of these things, but the same amount of investment into conserving more forests and natural habitats would would help a lot more species and probably ultimately um, improve the, the state of the environment a lot more. Now, if you if you try to shift that kind of high investment in individual organisms over to insects, it, it might well be that um, in some cases you could uh, help to, to foster uh, some increase in numbers. But I'd have thought that for most insects, which have relatively short life cycles, just breeding, if, if you've got any of them left, uh, breeding them up under optimal conditions and releasing them is going to be just as achievable. And probably the challenges they're going to face are going to be the same ones that their brothers and sisters out in the environment are already facing, that there may be a shortage of some components of the uh, the ecosystem that they need for their life cycles. So, if, for example, uh, they, as as larvae, they only feed on a particular plant species, and that plant species is rare, releasing a load more of them isn't necessarily going to help. Uh, so, so what you're mm. saying is that if we're going to attempt to save them by mass production, so to speak, whether it be through cloning or whether it be just to, as you say, farming them in some way, like you know, massive amounts of beehives being put together at once and we need to have the whole system in place. In other words, you can't just throw them out there and say, off you go, now you're free. You know, you can't just say that. We have to have everything there exactly. for them in place. Yeah. Even setting aside a small part of every garden just, just to go a bit wild mm-hmm. uh, is something that is likely to do more to help insects uh, because it, it helps to connect them up as well, that they can go from garden to garden and, you know, find find different flowers at different times of the year, etc. Uh, that's likely to have a lot more effect uh, and uh, be generally beneficial than any big charismatic investment of that kind. Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, we have one out here. There's a corner of our garden. It looks like it hasn't been tended to for years, and it's always the busiest in the summer. Uh, certainly certainly here in my garden, it's exactly the same, although I wouldn't say that it's it's one corner that's gone wild. Uh, most of the garden has, and there's a there's a, a few vegetables and things which mostly we have to um, 
try and keep keep the possums out of. That's our problem here. It's not so much the aphids, it's the possums. Yeah, possums are big eaters. I remember my trip my trip to Australia. That's uh that was one thing that was always I was always laughing at the big possums that you had out there. I ask a question um of all of my guests uh you know at the end of each podcast and it's yeah. um what are you listening to or, or reading at the moment? Um I've been I've been reading a, a book uh, called Choke Point Capitalism. Uh it's by um Rebecca Gibbon, Giblin, and, uh, and Corey Doctorow, uh, that's looking at how uh, some, of, particularly some of the big web companies, but um, other capitalist enterprises, how they increasingly squeeze both their their users, their consumers, uh, and the people who produce materials, whether it's musicians or authors or um, or you know, employees. Uh, and it's it's an interesting book because it, it is trying also to look at the cases where perhaps a slightly more just and fair balance um, is is possible. Uh, so I've, I've certainly been interested um, in that. Um, and one thing I've been rewatching actually, which I, I really enjoyed first time, and I watched it again just over the last couple of weeks, and uh, it just amazes me is is a, a two-season series called The End of the Effing World. Um, I don't know whether you've no. ever seen that. I think it's on Netflix here, <laughs> right. etc. It's it's a it's a British adaptation, uh, well, British-American, I believe it's set in Britain, I think, of, of a comic book. Uh, and uh, it is really remarkable acting. I, I would I would warn people that there is quite a lot of blood in it okay. um, and a bit of depression. Uh, but the, the two young leads in it uh, do an incredible job. Um, it's from a few years ago. I almost checked that out, then. I don't. I do have Netflix, so I haven't haven't found come across it yet. So um, I'll definitely get mm. in there and have a listen to it. I suppose um, you know, when you when you look at these kind of end of the world TV shows, which seem to be very popular, um, you know, with like The Last of mm. Us is quite popular at the moment, and then right. before that, we yeah. would have had a few a good few zombie ones. Um, you know, in terms, if we left the world tomorrow as a species, um, with the insects would probably be grateful in some way or another because they at the end of the day they don't really rely on us do they <laughs> no 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 not at all not at all uh yeah it's it's uh, it's it's interesting just how much of um all of the production of the world you know we take for ourselves mm. uh, and uh, yeah, it would be a very different world if we weren't here. Yeah, maybe they should do kind of a Last of Us, you know, just to see what the insects, an insect series, you know, see how they would <laughs> they would react if we all disappeared. Donald, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been really brilliant. Um, I was really looking forward to doing this because uh, I, I wanted to tackle a subject that maybe is not so popular and try and look at it from, from that way and see if we can let people know what the advantages of leaving those little creatures and those little things in your on your mm -hmm. window. Open the window, don't slap it. <laughs> yeah yeah well thanks very much it's, it's been a real pleasure and i hope it's useful now come here i want somebody to get to know you a little bit online how can they follow you you're on mastodon aren't you i'm on mastodon um i'm at d hoban at scicom s-c-i-c-o-m-m dot x-y-z um, and uh but uh i have a lot of bits and pieces yeah. on my website which is hoban h-o-b-e-r-n dot net uh so I'm always happy to communicate. Yeah, and we'll put that in the show notes for you. Uh, Donald, thanks again. And thanks to everyone out there for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed yourself today listening to All About Insects. My name is Ken Sweeney, and we will talk real soon. So take care, y'all. Bye-bye.